Section 3 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard. Rembrandt, Part 1. The eyes and the mouth are the supremely significant features of the human face. In Rembrandt's portraits, the eye is the center wherein life, in its infinity of aspect, is most manifest. Not only was his fidelity absolute, but there is a certain mysterious limpidity of gaze that reveals the soul of the sitter. A Rembrandt does not give up its beauties to the casual observer. It takes time to know it, but once known, it is yours forever. Emile Michel Swimming uneasily in my ink bottle is a small preachment concerning names and the way they have been evolved and lost or added to. Someday I will fish this effusion out and give it to a waiting world. Those of us whose ancestors landed at Plymouth or Jamestown are very proud of our family names, and even if we trace quite easily to Castle Garden, we do not always discard the patronymic. Harmon Geritz was a young man who lived in the city of Leyden, Holland, in the latter part of the 16th century. The letters S.Z. at the end of his name stood for Zoon and signified that he was the Zoon of Mynheer Garrett. Now Harmon Garretts duly served in apprenticeship with the miller, and when his time expired, being of an ambitious nature, he rented a mill on the city wall and started business for himself. Shortly after, he very naturally married the daughter of a baker. All of Mr. Harmon Garretts' customers called him Harmon, and when they wished to be exact, they spoke of him as Harmon Van Rin, that is to say, Harmon of the Rhine, for his mill was near the river. Out west, even now, if you call a man Mister, you will probably inquire what it is you have against him. Mr. and Mrs. Harmon lived in the mill, and as years went by, were blessed with a nice little family of six children. The fifth child is the only one that especially interests us, they named him Rembrandt. Rembrandt Hermanzoon van Rijn. He called himself when he entered at the grammar school at Leiden, aged 14. His father's first name being Harmon. He simply took that and discarded the garret entirely, according to the custom of the time. In fact, all our Johnsons are the sons of John, and the names Peterson, Thompson, and Wilson in feudal times, and their due and proper significance. Then, when we find names with a final ending of S, such as Robbins, Larkins, and Perkins, we are to understand that the owner is the son of his father. And so we find Rembrandt Harmon's room in his later years writing his name Hermentz, and then simply Harmon's. Mind here Harmon Gerentzud's woodmill, ground exceeding small, and the product found a ready market. There were no servants in the Muller's family. Everybody worked at the business. 
In Holland, people are industrious. The leisurely ways of the Dutch can, I think, safely be ascribed to their environment, and here is an argument Buckle might have inserted in his great book, but did not, and so I will write it down. There are windmills in Holland. I trust the fact need not longer be concealed, and these windmills are used for every possible mechanical purpose. Now the wind blows only a part of the time, except in Chicago, and there may be whole days when not a windmill turns in all Holland. The men go out in the morning and take due note of the wind, and if there is an absolute calm, many of them go back to bed. I have known the wind to die down during the day, and the whole force of a windmill troop off to a picnic, as a matter of course. So the elements in Holland set man the example. He will not rush himself to death when not even the wind does. Then another thing. Holland has many canals. Farmers load their hay on canal boats and take it to the barn. Women go to market in boats. Lovers sail, seemingly right across the fields. Canals everywhere. Traveling by canal is not rapid transit, so the people of Holland have plenty of precedent for moving at a moderate speed. There are no mountains in Holland, so water never runs. It may move, but the law of gravitation there only acts to keep things quiet. The Dutch never run foot races, neither do they scorch. In Amsterdam, I have seen a man sit still for an hour, and this with a glass of beer before him, gazing off into space, not once winking, not even thinking. You cannot do that in America, where trolley cars whiz and blizzards blow. There is no precedent for it in things animate or inanimate. In the United States, everything is on the jump, art included. Rembrandt Harmons worked in his father's mill but never strained his back. He was healthy, needlessly healthy, and was as smart as his brothers and sisters, but no smarter and no better looking. He was exceedingly self-contained and would sit and dream at his desk in the grammar school, looking out straight in front of him, just at nothing. The master tried flogging and the next day found a picture of himself on the blackboard, his face portrayed as anything but lovely. Young Rembrandt was sent home to fetch his father. The father came. Look at that, said the irate teacher. See what your son did. Look at that. My dear Armin sat down and looked at the picture in his deliberate Dutch way, and after about fifteen minutes said, Well, it does look like you. Then he explained to the schoolmaster that the lad was sent to school because he would not do much around the mill but draw pictures in the dust, and it was hoped that the schoolmaster could teach him something. The schoolmaster decided that it was a hopeless case, and the miller went home to report to the boy's mother. Now, whenever a Dutchman is confronted by a problem too big to solve, or a task too unpleasant for him to undertake, he shows his good sense by turning it over to his wife. You are his mother anyway, said Harmon van Rin, reproachfully. The mother simply waved the taunt and asked, do you tell me the schoolmaster says he will not do anything but draw pictures? Not a tap will he do but make pictures. 
he cannot multiply two by one. Well, said the mother, if he will not do anything but draw pictures, I think we'd better let him draw pictures. At that early age, I do not think Rembrandt was ambitious to be a painter. Good, healthy boys of fourteen are not hampered and harassed by ambition. Ambition, like love, camps hot upon our trail later. Ambition is the concomitant of rivalry, and sex is its chief promoter. It is a secondary sex manifestation. The boy simply had a little intuitive skill in drawing, and the exercise of the talent was a gratification. It pleased him to see the semblance of face or form unfold before him. It was a kind of play, a working off of surplus energy. Had the lad's mind at that time been forcibly diverted to books or business, it is very probable that today the catalogues would be without the name of Rembrandt. But mothers have ambitions even if boys have not. They wish to see their children do things that other women's children cannot do. Among wild animals, the mother kills, when she can, all offspring but her own. Darwin refers to mother love as that instinct of the mind of the female which causes her to exaggerate the importance of her offspring, often protecting them to the death. Through this instinct of protection is the species preserved, in human beings' mother love is well-flavored with pride, prejudice, jealousy, and ambition. This is because the mother is a woman, and this is well. God made it all, and did he not look upon his work and pronounce it good? The mother of Rembrandt knew that in Leyden there were men who painted beautiful pictures. She had seen these pictures at the university and in the town hall and in the churches, and she had overheard men discussing and criticizing the work. She herself was poor and uneducated. Her husband was only a miller, with no recreation beyond the beer garden, and a clicking reluctantly off to church in his wooden shoes on Sunday. They had no influential friends, no learned patrons. The men at the university never so much as nodded to millers, her lot was lowly, mean, obscure, and filled with drudgery and pettiness. And now, someone was saying her boy Rembrandt was lazy. He would neither work nor study. The taunt stung her mother pride. He will do nothing but make pictures. Ah, a great throb came to her heart. Her face flushed. She saw it all. All in prophetic vision stood out like an etching on the blankness of the future. He will do nothing but draw pictures. Very well, then. He shall draw pictures. He will draw so well that they shall adorn the churches of Leyden and the town hall and, yes, even the churches of Amsterdam. Holland shall be proud of my boy. He will teach other men to draw. His pictures will command fabulous prices and his name shall be honored everywhere. Yes, my boy shall draw pictures. This day will I take him to Mynheer Jacob von Swanenberch, who was a pupil of the great Rubens, and who has scholars even from Antwerpen. I will take him to the master, and I will say, Mine heir, I am only a poor woman, the daughter of an honest baker. 
My husband is a miller. This is my son. He will do nothing but draw pictures. Here is a bag of gold. Not much, but it is all good gold. There are no bad coins in this bag. I've been ten years in saving them. Take this bag. It is yours. Now teach my son to paint. Teach him as you taught Valdeshun and those others. My memory is bad. I cannot remember the names. I'm only a poor woman. Show my boy how to paint. And when I am dead, and you are dead, men will come to your grave and say, It is here that he rests. Here, the man who first taught Rembrandt Harmanzoon to use a brush. Do you hear, mynheer, Van Swanenbirch? The gold, it is yours, and this is my boy. The Van Swanenbirches were one of the most aristocratic families of Leiden. Jacob von Swanenbirch's father had been burgomaster, and he himself occupied from time to time offices of importance. He was not a great painter, although several specimens of his work still adorned the town hall of his native city. Rembrandt was not very anxious to attend Swanenbirch's classes. He was a hesitating, awkward youth, and on this account was regarded as unsocial. For a year the boy looked on, listened, and made straight marks and curves and all that. He did not read, and the world of art was a thing unknown to him. There are two kinds of people to be found in all studios, those who talk about art and the fellows who paint the pictures. However, Rembrandt was an exception, and for a time would do neither. He would not paint, because he said he could not. Anyway, he would not, but no doubt he did a deal of thinking. This habit of reticence kept him in the background, and even the master had suspicions that he was too beefy to hold a clear mental conception. The error of the Swanenberg Atelier lay in the fact that quiet folks are not necessarily stupid. It is doubtless true, however, that stupid men, by remaining quiet, may often pass for men of wisdom. This is because no man can really talk as wisely as he can look. Young Rembrandt was handicapped by a full moon face and small gray eyes that gave no glint, and his hair was so tousled and unruly that he could not wear a hat. So the sons of aristocrats who cracked sly jokes at the miller's boy had their fun. Rembrandt usually came in late, after the master had begun his little morning lecture. The lad was barefoot, having left his wooden shoon in the hallway, so as not to wear out the floor. He would bow awkwardly to the professor, follow Virgier or two that had been slyly pushed in his way, and taking his seat to the butt-end of a brush. "'Why are you always late?' asked the master one day. "'Oh,' I was working at home and forgot the time. And what are you working at? Me? I'm, I'm drawing a little. And he colored vermilion to the back of his neck. Well, bring your work here so we can profit by it, exclaimed the joker, and the class guffawed. The next morning, the lad brought his picture, a woman's face, a picture of a face homely, wrinkled, weather-beaten, 
but with a look of love and patience and loyalty beaming out of the quiet eyes. Who did this, demanded the teacher. Rembrandt hesitated, stuttered, stammered, and then confessed that he did it himself. He could not tell a lie. He was sure the picture would be criticized and ridiculed, but he had decided to face it out. It was a picture of his mother, and he had sketched her just as she looked. He would let them laugh, and then at noon he would wait outside the door and smash the boy who laughed loudest over the head with a wooden shoe and let it go at that. But the scholars did not laugh, for Jacob von Schwanenberch took the boy by the hand and leading him out before the class, told those young men to look upon their master. From that time forth, Rembrandt was regarded by the little art world of Leyden as a prodigy. Like William Cullen Bryant, who wrote Thanatopsis, when scarcely 18 and writing for 60 years thereafter never equaled it. Or Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who wrote The Blessed Damozel at the same age. Rembrandt sprang into life full-armed. It is probably true that he could not then have produced an elaborate composition, but his faces were Rembrandt-esque from the very first. Rembrandt is the king of light and shade. You never mistake his work. As the years passed, around him clustered a goodly company of pupils, hundreds in all, who diligently worked to catch the trick, but Rembrandt stands alone. He is the only artist who could ever paint a wrinkle, says Ruskin. All his portraits have the warts on, and the thought has often come to me that only a Rembrandt, the only Rembrandt, could have portrayed the face of Lincoln. Plain, homely, awkward, eyes not mates, sunken cheeks, leathery skin, moles, uncombed hair, neckcloth askew, but over and above and beyond all, a look of power, and the soul, that look of haunting sorrow and the great, gentle, compassionate soul within. And so there is a picture of Rembrandt's mother, which this son painted, that must ever stand out as one of the world's masterpieces. Let who will declare that the portrait by Richter in the gallery at Cologne of Queen Louise is the handsomest portrait ever painted. Yet the depth of feeling, the dignity and love in the homely old mother's face, pale not in comparison, but are things to which the proud and beautiful queen herself paid homage. Rembrandt painted nearly a hundred pictures of his mother that we can trace. In most of them she holds in her hands a little Bible, and thus did the son pay tribute to her devoted piety. She was a model of which he never tired. He painted her in court dress and various other fantastic garbs that she surely never wore. He painted her as a nun, as a queen, a court beauty, a plain peasant, a musician, and in various large pictures her face and form are introduced. And most of these pictures of his mother are plainly signed with his monogram. He also painted his sister as the Madonna, and this is signed. But although he doubtless painted his father's face, yet he did not sign such pictures, so their authenticity is a hazard. 
This fact gives a clue to his affections, which each can work out for himself. Rembrandt remained with Swan and Birch for three years, and the master proved his faithful friend. He gave him an introduction into the aristocratic art world, which otherwise might have barred its doors against so profound a genius, as aristocracy has done time and again. The best artists are not necessarily the best teachers. If a man has too much skill along a certain line, he will overpower and kill the individuality in his pupil. There are teachers who smother a pupil with their own personality, and thus it often happens that the strongest men are not the most useful as instructors. The ideal teacher is not the one who bends all minds to match his own, but the one who is able to bring out and develop the good that is in the pupil. Him we will crown with laurel. Swanenbirch was pretty nearly the ideal teacher. His good nature, the feminine quality of sympathy in his character, his freedom from all petty, quibbling prejudice, and his sublime patience all worked to burst the tough husk and develop that shy and sensitive, yet uncouth and silent youth, bringing out the best that was in him. A wrong environment in those early years might easily have shaped Rembrandt into a morose and resentful dullard. The good in his nature, thrown back upon itself, would have been turned to gall. The little business on the city wall had prospered, and Harmon Van Ryn moved with his family out of the old mill into a goodly residence across the street. He was carrying his head higher, and the fact that his son Rembrandt was being invited to the homes of the professors at the university was incidentally thrown off, until the patrons at the beer garden grew weary and wrapped their glasses on the table as a signal for silence. Swanenberg had given a public exhibition of the work of his pupils, at which young Rembrandt had been pushed forward as an example of what right methods in pedagogics could do. Well, why cannot all your scholars draw like that then? asked a broad-beamed Dutchman. They certainly could, if they would follow the principles I lay down, answered the master severely. But admiration did not spoil Rembrandt. His temperature was too low for ebullition. He took it all quite as a matter of course. His work was done with such ease that he was not aware it was extraordinary in quality. And when Swanenberch sold several of his sketches at goodly prices and put the silver in the lad's hand, he asked who the blockheads were who had invested. Swanenberch taught his pupils the miracle of spreading a thin coat of wax on a brass plate and drawing a picture in the wax with a sharp graver. Then acid was poured over it, and the acid ate into the brass so as to make a plate from which you could print. Etching was a delight to Rembrandt. Expert illustrators of books were in demand at Leyden, for it was then the bookmaking center of northern Europe. The Elzevirs were pushing the plantains of Antwerp hard for first place. So skillfully did Rembrandt sketch that one of the great printers made a proposition to his father to take the boy until he was 21 and pay the father a thousand florins a year for the lad's services as an illustrator. 
the father accepted the proposition, and the next day brought around another Harmon Zoom, who, he declared, was just as good. But the bookmaker was stubborn and insisted on having a certain one or none. So the bargain fell through. It was getting near four years since Swan and Birch had taken Rembrandt into his keeping, and now he went to the boy's parents and said, I have given all I have to offer to your son. He can do all I can, and more. There is only one man who can benefit him, and that is Peter Lastman of Amsterdam. He must go and study with the great Lastman. I myself will take him. Lastman had spent four years in Italy and had come back full to overflowing with classic ideas. His family was one of the most aristocratic in Amsterdam, and whatever he said concerning art was quoted as final. He was the court of last appeal. His rooms were filled with classic fragments, and on his public days visitors flocked to hear what he might have to say about the wonders of Venice, Florence, and Rome. For in those days, men seldom traveled out of their own countries, and those who did had strange tales to tell the eager listeners when they returned. Lastman was handsome, dashing, popular. His pictures were in demand, principally because they were Lastman's. Proud ladies came from afar and begged the privilege of sitting as his model. In Italy, Lastman had found that many painters employed prentice talent. The great man would sketch out the pictures and the boys would fill in the color. Lastman would go off about his business and perhaps drop in occasionally during the day to see how the boys got on, adding a few touches here and there and gently rebuking those who showed too much genius. Lastman believed in genius, of course, but only his own genius filled his ideal. As a consequence, all of Lastman's pictures are alike, they were all equally bad. They represent neither the Italian school nor the Dutch, being hybrids, Italian skies and Holland backgrounds, Dutchmen dressed as dagos. Lastman was putting money in his purse. He closely studied public tastes and conformed thereto. He was popular, and there is in America today a countryman of his, of like temperament, who is making much monies out of literature by similar methods. Into Lastman's keeping came the young man, Rembrandt Harmons. Lastman received him cordially and set him to work. But the boy proved hard to manage. He had his own ideas about how portraits should be painted. Lastman tried to unlearn him. The master was patient and endeavored hard to make the young man paint as he should, that is, as Lastman did, but the result was not a success. The Lastman intellect felt sure that Rembrandt had no talent worth encouraging. Lastman produced a great number of pictures, and his name can be found in the catalogues of the galleries of Amsterdam, Munich, Berlin, and Antwerp, and his canvases are in many of the old castles and palaces of Germany. In recent years, they have been enjoying a vogue, simply because it was possible that Rembrandt had worked on them. All the Lastmans have been gotten out and thoroughly dusted by the connoisseurs and a frantic search for earmarks. 
the perfect willingness of Lastman to paint a picture on any desired subject and have it ready Saturday night, all in the colors the patron desired, with the guarantee that it will give satisfaction, filled the heart of Rembrandt with loathing. At the end of six months, when he signified a wish to leave, it was a glad relief to the master. Lastman had tried to correct Rembrandt's vagaries as to Kia of Scloro, but without success. So he wrote an ambiguous letter certifying to the pupils having all his future before him, gave him a present of ten florins in jingling silver, and sent him back to his folks. Rembrandt had been disillusioned by his stay in the fashionable art world of Amsterdam. Some of his idols had crumbled, and there came into his spirit a goodly dash of pessimism. His father was disappointed and suggested that he get a place as illustrator at the bookmakers before someone else stepped in and got the job. But Rembrandt was not ambitious. He decided he would not give up painting, at least not yet. He would keep at it, and he would paint as he pleased. He had lost faith in teachers. He moped around the town and made the acquaintance of the painter Engelbrecht and his talented pupil, Lucas von Leyden. Their work impressed him greatly, and he studied out every detail on the canvases until he had absorbed the very spirit of the artist. Then, when he painted, he very naturally took their designs and treated them in his own way. Indeed, the paucity in invention of those early days must ever impress the student of art. End of section three.